Okay, hi. Um, we're here for our fifth episode, and I'm here with Julie Litvak, uh, who's actually just finished her BA Fine Art degree. So it's a very exciting period, and she's sort of piecing everything together. Uh, so she works across performance and sculpture, and sort of many more experiments in between, I'm sure. And so we're going to talk to her a bit about her uh, performance projects and the work she's doing at the moment. She's just finished the degree show um, at Central St Martins and has also just finished an installation piece in the RA for one of their summer live series. So welcome, Tuli. Hi, thanks for having me. (laughs) No worries. Yeah, so would you like to tell me a little bit about your practice, how you got to performance and sculpture and everything around it? Sure, yeah, I guess I don't want to go too far back, but like (laughs) Um, I've always been very interested in fine art and have practiced. I performance is a sort of newer thing. I went to a performing or not a performing arts high school, but an arts high school. And that's where we studied video art. And actually that was kind of a platform that enabled me to start performance art because suddenly I had to document something. Mm. Um so that's kind of when it started. And previous to that I actually did mostly painting. So I've moved away from that and at Central St. Martins, they have this kind of division between four different groups. So I'm in 3D, which is essentially sculpture, but um, it's much more open than that. So the way I think I approach my practice is it's very much to do with the environments I'm in and also the things that inhabit that environment, whether they are objects or the gestures and ways we interact with those objects and within a space. So that's really where sculpture kind of meets the performance. Like there's, I don't know which one comes first. Like I've I've tried to think about that, but I'm, I'm not quite sure. Definitely they feed into and are essential to each other. So yeah, so I, I don't know how it comes about, but I have these juxtapositions in my head of, there was, for example, there was a piece I made with cacti I had at home just on a mantelpiece and there was also a little um, plaster bust and I was just like looking at them together and kind of like and just kind of like suddenly thought they would look they would look sort of like hair buns on <laughs> the sculpture head like so it's like space oh. buns for an yeah, ancient sculpture yeah kind of like exactly like gal- galactic sculptures or something. So, yeah just put Carrie them together Fisher style yeah and then like Another material I've used a lot are wine glasses and I moved into a new house. So it's all kind of like, it's not exactly biography in a kind of like deep sense, but you know, when you move to a new house and you have like one thing. So I just had wine glasses, I had to use them. It felt very decadent because I was this awful like student accommodation, but I just had wine glasses. So that kind of became something that became more symbolic to where I was at that point. Yeah, it's really interesting seeing what objects artists pick up on. And uh, yeah, I find it very interesting, the sort of everyday objects that uh, that come out at you and you're like, oh, actually, that could that's a really interesting thing to study. Yeah, I find that objects have a fantastic value in them, like there's this potential in them mm-hmm. and we use them in a certain way. And the same goes to spaces. We use spaces the way we act and sort of perform within spaces is quite scripted and limited, but then... There are these potentials and I kind of like to try and figure out 
how to bring these potentials together and that's something I do through performance within the space or with the object and trying to bring something new in it. There's quite an interesting progression between sculpture and performance or video mm. art. I know the course at, so I recently did an exhibition in the window gallery here at the Lethby uh, Gallery as part of Central St Martin's study and museum collection and it was looking into where the film and video course actually came from and it came from two strands one of which was painting the painting um, BA course and one was sculpture and they sort of independently went towards video in the 70s when no one else really was and it was a really interesting way to see why sculptors they're going towards the film format and it, it, it is that sort of like what else can we do with an object? How can we make something 3D that you experience and that you're around every day? How can we go on from that and take that a step further? So it's interesting seeing artists doing that still. Yeah, definitely. I think especially because now we're in an age where digital is so prevalent. So we kind of have to start thinking about objects actually via a screen and after editing. But I think it's also interesting because these are obviously technologies that have been created by humans and and so it kind of goes hand by hand, like we've made them and yet they influence us. So going back to that cacti bust mm-hmm. thing, um, I ended up photographing it or using this technology called photogrammetry, which is basically um, kind of 360 photographic scanning of an object. And then you render it in a program and you get like this kind of digital 3D model of it, basically. So it's just kind of trying to explore you know, how in contemporary times we can think about sculpture and objects. And for the mm. audience of that sort of piece, you see it on a screen, don't you? So you see a 3D object, but very much in a 2D setting. Yeah, exactly. I have, I have projects that are more like realised works that, you know, a lot of research and reading have gone into it. And with that, it was more like a gesture and an experiment. And then later on in a piece, of, which I think actually you saw at one of the open studios we had, I used photogrammetry to actually capture moments within a performance and then it became very multi-leveled like I don't know if we should talk about it now or maybe yeah no let's let's go into that piece uh so it's called Dart Nation um and as you say you had the photogrammetry kind of documenting it but it was also part of the when I was there it was up on a screen and it's very much part of what you saw as the viewer and as the visitor yeah so it's an interesting can you talk a bit about those two elements and how they work together yeah so I think so what the work was what you encountered in the space was basically a single mattress kind of leaning against the wall upright and then below it was a big board of wood and um, some that's been sprayed and it was some red spray and different um, stains and then some darts both on the wood but also some of the darts were stuck in the mattress and sorry this is a bit long and intricate but in the mattress um, part of the mattress was removed kind of in at eye height and it was um, an old monitor kind of embedded into it like a sort of face and it was showing myself performing with this mattress that it was embedded in and I was throwing darts at the mattress. And then on the right-hand side, there was a computer screen with a kind of uh, this digital rendering of myself doing that action. Um, and then during the, the open studios, the audience was invited to, to kind of follow the video and themselves become part of this performance. But back to your question about like the relation between photogrammetry and the video and the object, I think something that's really... something which I researched for my dissertation was actually 
to do with that period you were talking about, the 60s and 70s, and when art and performance started intersecting and those disciplines were being broken down. I was reading about the minimalist movement and a really interesting book by Julia Rubentisch called The Aesthetics of Installation Art. Where, write that one down. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a brilliant read and it's also not not too difficult, but so many references. Um, and she talks about how the minimalist movement, part of the art, even though the objects were so minimal and simple, but because they were that, they enabled the viewer encountering them to suddenly be aware of the structure of the experience of the encounter. Because I was trying to think about like, when I see art that really resonates, what, why does it resonate? Like last year I saw a piece by Michael Dean at uh, the Raven Row Gallery at this exhibition called Speaking Pots. And he was performing with the text and it just totally engulfed me. But at the same time, I had this awareness of the space I was in and other people's reactions. I was trying to think, what, what does that mean? And that was kind of a very abstract question, but I was trying to explore that in my dissertation. And I think something I want to do in my work and something that I feel that that piece did and the minimalist artist did was kind of reveal the, the aesthetic experience. Mm. So the viewer is conscious of what they're engaging in. There's no kind of illusion as such. In my work, having that photogrammetry video was kind of like, and this old monitor showing, you know, the video of the performance. I was trying to like bring an awareness of the process of the making of this piece and then with the audience involved in it as well kind of breaking these distances and in my work having that photogrammetry video yeah that's because you as you say you sort of you do give a lot to the audience in mm. that you're giving them quite a lot of layers of not only things to look at and things to sort of absorb mm. and think about but um <laughs> Oh, you give um, you give a lot about how it was made. Yeah. So you've given them the video, but then you've given them the actual physical object to yeah. participate in, and then you've given them the photogrammetry. And I think that sort of arrangement of time and being very mm. honest with yeah. how much you want them to engage with this and you yeah. don't want to trick them into anything yeah. is a really interesting statement. Um, yeah, so I was, w- I was wondering what... Um, what was behind that notion of time? Uh, like, if that was anything yeah, that you'd thought about in the definitely. piece? Definitely. Well, as someone who does, yeah, sculpture and performance, and then mostly when people encounter your work these days, it will be, it won't be a live experience. But for me, the live experience is very important. And I was just thinking, how do you recreate that afterwards? And how do you reveal the fact that it's been recreated? So with that specific piece with the video um, in the editing, it was a very rough edit. It wasn't a kind of like traditional chronological, like illusionary editing, which is like Mm. things don't happen one after the other, but we create that through editing. Um, But for this, it was really important for me to have it rough. And like there were bits where it was shot in a studio and in another studio nearby, there was a fashion shoot going on. So every so often you could hear like the photographer yelling like, yes, Uh. go on, and like (laughs) trying to encourage the model. And I didn't want to cut that out because I felt like actually this was part of the piece and this was how it was made. And actually it was quite Mm. interesting because like having that juxtaposed onto my performance kind of gave it, you know, maybe a new layer, a new meaning. Uh, And in terms of time, like the piece itself, I was trying to think about an experience I had gone through um 
and trying to negotiate my feelings and how I reacted to that situation. So the piece itself was a reaction, a kind of kind of processing of time. Because the piece was um, set around sort of the Valentine's Day mark. Yeah, and yeah. There was something very interesting about um, what we were discussing earlier about emotion mm. and how much we just play into the stereotypes of it, like Valentine's yeah. Day being a thing that yeah. we have to do and we mm. have to react to it positively or negatively based on where we are in our lives. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, so it was in the vicinity of Valentine's Day and I had gone through a breakup quite recently and I was feeling all these emotions that people, you know, tend to feel after they've been broken up, shall we say. And <laughs> and then, but I did simultaneously with as deep as these emotions were, I was kind of questioning how much of what I was feeling was due to the way I, I know someone is supposed to react to a breakup. And yeah, and then I was thinking about, you know, then Valentine's Day comes and it's a celebration of, of love, supposedly, but actually a capitalist one. But anyway, mm. celebration and, of chocolate and oh, chocolate flowers and, and flowers and, yeah. and like commodities. But anyway, and I didn't have anyone to, you know, as opposed to the previous year, I did receive these things that I didn't. And like, I was just thinking about like, you know, me as being broken up, heartbroken, you know, the performance of being heartbroken mm. and like how much of it is me feeling that way authentically and how much is it because I know I just was, you know, I have this knowledge of a role I'm supposed to play. Um, and I wanted to kind of take it and kind of really examine it. And in order to do it, I wanted to blow it up and think about, you know, how would like this, a superhero be react to being broken up with and I was thinking about <laughs> Cupid and like you know the dart and red and all those kind of symbols and I wanted to create a sort of almost like a hedonistic celebration of being broken up with so <laughs> I became this kind of super me and decided to take the mattress of my ex-partner and like use it as a sort of target the real physical mattress. The real physical. Excellent. His, yeah. <laughs> was he okay with that? I, Did you take it with permission? No, I mean, it was his mattress when he was staying at mine. Uh, so okay. it was, yeah, I mean, it, I didn't take his, his I didn't steal anything. <laughs> <laughs> just put it, it was all that would have been a nice element of the performativity. Yeah, yeah um, no. But, but slightly, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so the real, the real mattress and... Um, and then in the performance, I'm drinking wine whilst I'm throwing arrows, which to begin with, I'm not very good at. But yeah, as I drink the wine, it kind of becomes more like messier and I don't know if more violent, but just, yeah, total mess. And then I don't know if it ever really resolves itself. Like at some point the darts run out and so does the wine. And I feel like in a sense, that's what happens with a breakup, you know, kind of utilize all your tears and your emotions and it kind of dries out and it's still there but you know you just kind of move on and yeah. do you still have the mattress and everything is it like I where do. is this whole piece it's behind my bed actually Excellent. okay <laughs> to be used so in the future its use um, yeah yeah unfortunately it can't be used anymore as a mattress but um yeah maybe in the future as another installation piece <laughs> and there was um quite a nice unanticipated ending to that piece wasn't there with um on the actual open studios when you came back and were clearing up you noticed 
Yeah, someone had over the weekend um, managed to get into the studio and had played with the darts and hit the screen. So the screen, there were two quite major dents in the screen, but surprisingly, it still played the video and it actually looked pretty good. It's so, quite a nice yeah. ending to it as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not very nice for the the place that, you know, loaned me their equipment, but it was no, all really good. not. <laughs> But yeah, that sort of brings mm. it to a, a weird close you didn't expect. Yeah, and also I guess that breaking of a screen, right? Like those, like that distance it was something I tried to achieve in the work. So <laughs> maybe it did happen. Yeah, that's true. Mm. Um, I'd really like to talk about this element of control in your mm. pieces. Because with that, that was a sort of, there were elements of chance because you were throwing sort of live darts. You didn't yeah. know where they were going to land. Um, you sort of left let other people be mm. part of the piece. There's sort of some slight risk in there, definitely, um, yeah. and some sort of passing over control to other people. And um, especially at the end, when someone actually ends up breaking it, and that's something you hadn't yeah. really planned into the no. piece and wasn't part of mm. the piece. Um, but I was wondering if we could talk a bit about some of your most recent pieces with the wine glasses. Um, so Tuli has uh, two sets of two sort of um, performance pieces called Act Balance um, that come in two iterations and both of them have some element of like control to them. Um, we were watching the video earlier and I do recommend sort of logging onto the Vimeo and YouTube channels and checking this out um, but there were sort of gasps from the audience at points because you had a whole stack of glasses that looked very precariously balanced. Um, with ping pong balls sort of almost suspended. Oh, golf balls, actually. Golf balls. But yeah. are they go- oh, they're they the do golf look, balls. Yeah, really they look very similar, but yeah. Much heavier golf balls, That's aren't they? why I chose golf balls. I felt mm. they had a kind of, yeah, more substance to them, I guess. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, um, yeah so they were suspended sort of between these upended glasses. And you had, you were sort of walking around it in the first act balance. Mm. With, was it with a sword or with like with a, a golf club? With a golf club. Okay, that makes sense. With the golf yeah. balls. Um, <laughs> and looked like you were about to hit it and didn't. There was a sort of like, you knew what you were going to do. You knew you weren't going to hit mm. it, but the audience didn't know that. Yeah. And um, yeah, I was wondering a bit if you could talk about how that progresses into your next piece yeah. and how important that control as an artist is for you to know what you're going to mm. do and to let maybe other people do things too. Mm. I guess, um, yeah, I think if you, if as an artist you think you have control, you'll inevitably be disappointed because you never actually have control. So, um, but yeah, but those kind of questions, it's also to do with authorship, I think. Like, you know, you make something, but then the minute people interact with it, you have no control about over how it's going to be interpreted and read. Um, So... I think, yes, with the first one, there was this kind of column which I was moving around and I was kind of pretending to hit it, hit it, but I never quite did. But then I actually had performed it again and I accidentally did hit it. <laughs> so even though I can plan something, I don't even have control over myself, let alone <laughs> your, like everything else. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but yeah, there was more of an element of control in that one. And uh, the piece, I think, was strongest when it wasn't broken. So when... You know, there was this what if kind of moment or moments, but um, in the end, there was no resolve to it, like not for the audience and not for me. But I thought that was a stronger kind of ending than having, um, 
yeah, a break, like crescendo and, you know. Yeah, not just the pure sense. spectacle of Yeah, no, watching it, exactly, exactly. It was, uh, but then, and that w- was something I did last year in a small gallery in Islington, but for this year, for the degree show, I was kind of thinking about this thing that, this sculpture, which I was kind of roaming around and um, kind of engulfing, what if it engulfed me? What if it, it engulfed a person? What, hap- what would happen if it became a space? So I used that column and I multiplied it quite a few times and it became this circular space. And I decided I wanted to test that space. It was about 190 centimetres uh, in diameter. Um, I and made out of these gl- wine glasses, wasn't it? Exactly, and uh, out of these columns of wine glasses and golf balls. Um, and they were secured to a sort of base I had cut out, but again, like with different things, but obviously they could be toppled over like if you if you really tried it would break um but I felt that like my abilities as a performance artist were you know limited to some extent and I wanted to work to really test that space I wanted to work with people that were professional movers uh in a way so I, I decided to work with dancers and ended up collaborating with 30 dancers on an ongoing performance so there was that space and each time a dancer would come in and they all brought their own. I kind of told them about, you know, the piece and how I made it and so forth. But I wanted to give them the freedom to see how this space impacted their movement specifically. And so we ended up with lots of different performances over the course of the degree show. And that was quite an interesting thing. And as you said, going back to control, that was a moment where I happily rendered my control um, because I feel like the moment you let go a bit, something new and better will kind of emerge. And I feel that was the case, hopefully. I'm imagining your house to be full of, as you said, wine glasses, have, but also lots of golf balls. I have hundreds of golf balls, ah, actually, great. I got, um, yeah, for free. But anyway, yeah. That's good. Yeah, <laughs> just in case. There are a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, people, some people collect them and it's nothing to do with them. So I would pass them mm-hmm. on golf I actually got some for free from different golf courses because they just really have nothing to do with the used ones. But that's that sort of collecting process must be really yeah, interesting. Yeah, really weird and like also yeah, there's that kind of when you you approach someone and you just want to be like, oh, can I just have hundreds of golf balls? It's a bit weird and mm. you kind of sound insane. But if you say you're an art student, suddenly it's all legitimate and fine. Yeah, is, yeah. You sort of get a pass card for yeah, that. Too. Yeah, that's really. Uh, yeah, I never really think of the behind the scenes. How does she get the golf balls thing? Yeah, but that's yeah, that's a major part. Of it. Yeah, the only thing is like I'd never quite thought about how heavy a couple hundred golf balls are. So I went mm. with like a suitcase to uh, Woolwich to pick them up, and they are extremely heavy like trying to really? take them up the stairs and the tube was ridiculous and it was funny because like people around me I don't think they quite understood how heavy the bag was <laughs> <laughs> like it was just a small suitcase but, it was, but yeah anyway like managed to get them <laughs> home <laughs> safely my god and the wine glasses I don't know how you brought those into oh, the school yeah well I had that was another again the production element of these pieces is takes many times like months and a lot of preparation and a lot of health and safety form filling oh, gosh, and negotiations. I'm sure, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, with that, I initially when I just needed a couple, I just bought them like quite some cheap kind of reinforced glasses. But then I wanted to get hundreds of them, and I was mm. like, I'm a student. I 
really can't afford to get hundreds, so I thought maybe I should get plastic ones. But actually, the good quality plastic ones are more expensive than glass ones, surprisingly. Oh, really? And they don't... Mm, that's annoying. Yeah, and they don't have the same properties, and it kind yeah. of loses something. Like, the reflection's not quite the same. I did try it. And then I just contacted, like, tens of um, catering equipment companies and asked them to sponsor me and got a partial sponsorship which was quite good and then was able after saving up for a whole year purchase 600 glasses or I got like a very very big considerable discount but yeah and then did you have a big party with all the glasses (laughs) no they're all packed up and sent off to yeah uh uh, storage facility or basically oh. my friend's dad excellent <laughs> a storage facility <laughs> you tried to bluff that one <laughs> again when, you, when you're a student you mm. just have to work with what you have so Absolutely. they very kind else? yeah take that on <laughs> that glass structure was very much a byproduct of working at the king's cross csm building which is an old brewery that's been refurbished and now it's kind of mo- modernized with a lot of you know steel and wood and and glass um trying to make art or being creative at central st martins is very different to um more traditional schools in terms of architecture mm, especially in the last because it's um this central st martin's building has moved in the last four or five years and it used to be down in um cherry cross which is a more traditional art school building mm. um but yeah here it's you feel a little bit like a guinea pig in those classrooms yeah well it was really it was kind of one of the first big companies or institutions that moved into this developing area when King's Cross was being developed and um, so it has part of the aesthetic here is a kind of like very modern quite cold open office sort of feel and it's kind of weird to try and create art in a space that's so non-traditional like it's not a traditional studio Um, it feels somewhat corporate and cold sometimes like but that obviously gives you more things to be inspired by and kind of, you know, react to. And, like, when you think about it, it's quite prevalent to the art market and just trying to be an artist today in general. So how do you interact in this kind of situation and how do you react to it and try and think about it? So I personally find or found making work in this kind of open space area where our studios are literally have huge wall uh, glass walls to the outside. So anyone walking outside can see into it and on the other hand we can see out as well but it gives it creates a sort of ongoing consciousness of yourself so you're not you know it's not an intimate free studio in that sense and I was thinking about glass as a sort of material that allows for consciousness but it also creates a self-consciousness and it has a kind of voyeuristic quality to it and um, how this material kind of influences the people that are in these glass buildings. Um, so I wanted to create something that had that kind of, you know, fragility, um, where an illusionary kind of distance where, you know, you can see through it, but there's something in between, a sort of separation. And I guess glass has that lovely reflective, especially the wine mm-hmm. glasses. 
um, because they're so small, the curvature gives yeah. you a, a really nice reflection. So you could actually see, you could pretty much see your other artwork into the glass, I think, because your other artwork there was very nearby. It was the, in the lifts, um, and it was called Glass Lifts Dance. Um, and it was set just slightly above in the actual lifts that were going up and down to the libraries that we're actually not allowed to use as students. No, we're um, not. <laughs> which is quite interesting. Um, so how did you choose setting it in there? Is this something you've done before? Yeah, well, I was, um, for the degree show, I was placed in, in this, the entrance to the building, which is a very, very kind of high ceiling um, area. And it has, part of it is glass again. And I was kind of thinking about, I wanted to utilize the space in a, as total a way as I could. And I was thinking about the lifts going up and down and about the height of the building. I thought well, that would be fabulous to have that kind of, you know, performances going all the way up and coming all the way down. Um, and also, again, this space that we cannot access and like actually through making art there, suddenly I could get a pass. But that was a very long story and mm. took a lot of <laughs> negotiating and heartache. But we finally got it. And... Um, yeah, because I even though I had make a, made a sculpture that was kind of inspired by the space, I also wanted to use the space more directly in a space that's, again, something that's been kind of utilized in a mountain, you know, everyday kind of fashion. But think about the way we perform in it. When you're in a glass lift, you know, you can see all the way down, but you can also be seen. Um, and I think hearing from people working in the building that way that we're using the lift while the performances were going on. They said it was a very visceral experience because you could really smell the sweat of the dancers that were performing in the lift. And So people were actually going into the lifts mm. and using the most functional lift at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was all about, like, destructing, but not too much, you know, just, like, kind of testing that limit again. Like, how far can we go mm. um, without breaking anything? <laughs> yeah. And I guess presenting it sort of to people, mm. and very, very near people, but like not breaking yeah. that barrier. Yeah. And that's yeah. interesting. Mm. And that also kind of, um, yeah, thinking about the space, I ended up doing something outside the building. Um, I was just kind of interested again, not only about the kind of you know, uh, close location, which was the inside of the building, but again, with the glass, you have the outside all the time reflected inside. So I was thinking about, King's Cross or the outside as well around the campus and there are these like wonderful fountains outside where usually um, only kids really ever walk into and I was thinking that that's kind of an interesting space to try mm. and be used as well because that's suddenly a public space um, as opposed to a university where it isn't actually public it's owned by the property developers and they kind of like you know, almost lend it for families to use and kind of legitimise the space and, you know, um, just to kind of pretend that it's a kind of public-serving space, but it isn't. It's very policed, isn't it? Very you, policed, yeah. You see people try and do things and mm. the men with the red hats come and they have a word. Yeah, yeah. So, again, like, trying to negotiate using that space took months and months and <laughs> nearly didn't happen, but... In the end, it did, and um, what I made there were were two sculptures from wood I brought from Epping Forest, and were kind of gathered together in sort of like pyramid kind of formations. And um, again, I was thinking about who else, 
uses that space and there are a lot of there's a lot of construction going on it's it's an ongoing side of construction king's cross like being developed and um i wanted to dance a dancer to move with the sculpture but wearing a um like a high visibility orange vest and pants and kind of like thinking about yeah the fountains as a sort of romantic natural thing but through the lens of development and kind of this construction that's going on around so her moves were kind of trying to bring the two together I think in a sense yeah it's interesting seeing because in all of your pieces there seems to be this relationship between the person the object the place mm. and it you play with how it how that changes and as we discussed before sometimes you give like a detailed brief to them sometimes you don't um and yeah, that idea of um, it being improvised is really interesting because that's another thing that happened in your RA piece, yeah. wasn't it? Um, that the dancers for a lot of it, some of it was choreographed, but for a lot of it were reacting yeah. to what you'd set up, which yeah. is a really interesting dynamic. Mm. Yeah, because I guess that means they have to react to, yeah, live to what's going on, whether it's the people, the change of light, um, the weather yeah. like there are all these different elements and that again makes I think there's a sort of authenticity to that but on the other hand for the RA piece I was as opposed to the previous pieces we talked about with um, the lifts and the, the glass sculpture and so forth um, I did want to have a short choreograph part to it as well just to kind of for myself again to kind of develop and see um, what happens when you have both what, what happens when you have both improvised and choreographed movements with in, within a space and to an object which was a, um yeah so that was quite interesting it also gave us an opportunity to work with with choreographers and a sound artist um made um, a track for it nice how did you find because that was a commissioned piece by the ra wasn't it yeah. how did you find that process different or did you find it different to initiating something entirely from what you want to do and placing it yeah. where you want every piece you make always has you know limitations and restrictions usually you know budget and space and time but with the commission there are numerous more constrictions but um on the other hand that's again an opportunity to kind of try and you know, find your own voice within these frames and limitations that always exist. But yeah, with the commission piece, there was a brief and usually, uh, at least in our degree and in fine art in general, like you don't really work usually to a brief unless it's a commission. <laughs> um, so the commission for the summer lates, the first one was um, kind of a midsummer celebration. So kind of thinking about um, pagan rituals, celebrating nature and summer in a kind of contemporary context. It was just a week or so after our degree show, so I didn't have much time to make something new, but I kind of felt like the wood sculpture outside would work for that as well, but I wanted to kind of, yeah, kind of change it up. And this time it wasn't one dancer, but quite a few. And then there was the kind of choreographed piece and the sound that was kind of playing on um, the sound piece had mixes that were from folk music and kind of bagpipes I think but also kind of forest ambience and also kind of darker kind of um, 
dance and kind of electronic melodies going with it. So yeah, kind of bringing it to a more contemporary level, I guess. Mm, and that really works as well with the um, the outfits that they were wearing. So they were wearing yeah. all these high-vis jackets and that really does bring in sort of the notion of the city and what, because mm. when, it, when it got to the more high-speed dancing and the more high-speed choreographed section, it really did seem like it could be what a modern-day pagan ritual would be, but in the city and, like, looking at it from a very yeah. different perspective. Yeah, I was, yeah, definitely. And I was thinking, yeah, about all this construction we see around us and, like, kind of the kind of almost ritualistic aspect of it. Like, it almost feels innately human to have to all the time construct and make something bigger and better. And, you know, it's ongoing, like, self-improvement, but also, like, the improvement of the spaces we inhabit and yeah kind of trying to bring it but also kind of bringing it back to maybe more ancient kind of rituals just in terms of movement and this was kind of where again talking about control I these were ideas I discussed with the choreographers but there was very much a kind of collaboration there um, and I wanted to allow them you know their freedoms to kind of bring what they wanted to bring to the table that's yeah. interesting um, yeah, this uh, this notion of like passing on to new people. Yeah. This has happened in a few of your series, hasn't it? So there's yeah. um, the other one, autopsia, autopsia. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's it. Do you want to talk a bit about that and the progression of the different yeah. iterations you had it in? Yeah. So um, I was um, in the beginning of this year, which is was my last year at uh, CSM. Um, I was thinking again about. Um, objects performing or the performativity of objects and um, I wanted to create an object that would be sort of activated by people but not in a kind of tool sense Um, and I was thinking kind of but they're not actually and um, so I was thinking about autopsy tables because that's a place where humans are placed when they've sort of become objects you know they're not animated anymore and I was thinking it would be interesting to have an autopsy table that had a life sort of a thing like so what I ended up doing was creating an autopsy table where kind of um, was slotted onto the four legs but not attached to the leg tables so it could be the top could be moved up and down and um, it was somewhat kind of rickety and that was partially just what happened but also very much part of the idea and um, so for the first performance with that object I was thinking about again kind of mythologies of death and um, kind of passing away and I was thinking about um, about kind of Greek mythology and stuff and just looking into different mythologies and I was thinking about like these gatekeepers because many times you know in passing to the next world there would always be like some sort of gatekeeper whether it was a monster (laughs) or something like that and you'd have to kind of pass through it um and I wanted to have like like welcoming you in yeah Yeah. exactly welcoming you in maybe and like I wanted to have two gatekeepers like under this table that would kind of balance the tabletop on their heads and the I just happened to see a couple of times these identical twins at uni and I thought well they would make the perfect gatekeepers because they're identical and you could just pass through them and and um, yeah I ended up asking if they minded being part of it and they didn't which was great and um, the only thing with 
So this first version of the performance where they were supposed to kind of kneel down and balance the table on their head, um, the thing was they didn't feel quite comfortable with having it balanced on their head because <laughs> uh. <laughs> it wasn't it was somewhat heavy, like not awfully heavy, but still. So I ended up kind of making these little fixtures to hold some of the weight. But then during the performance, I realized that it kind of became too balanced and part of it became more of an aesthetic thing rather than a performative object and. Um, yeah, it didn't quite, again, like this element of like never knowing quite what's going to happen during a performance. But yeah, the other thing with the table was it was partly an autopsy table, but also partly a snooker table in the sense that it had a couple of holes in it. And um, this kind of game of chance and kind of, you know, life as a sort of a kind of metaphor for life. It's a bit cliche, maybe, but anyway. <laughs> it's interesting to see it, though. Yeah. There's one thing sort of thinking it and then actually putting it into a situation where mm. people are looking at it, it becomes not really a cliche Yeah, because I wanted that table to not only not be stable, but kind of trigger something. And that thing was the golf ball, which mm. I used as a snooker ball. <laughs> All these just, motifs that keep yeah, coming out. I can't, really I can't quite part from golf balls for some reason. It wasn't, <laughs> a snooker ball wasn't quite the same. And so... During the performance, when the twins were balancing that table, I kind of had my snooker stick and um, I was kind of trying to play snooker and again, another game, which I'm not very proficient at (laughs) and which becomes even harder when you're trying to play on an unstable surface. Um, So yeah, so basically the performance ended when the ball finally went through and fell. And that was obviously, again, some chance. You never quite know. It was almost, I was thinking about those video games, like old video games where you'd shoot, like, a ball up. and like, Oh, yeah, the big machine, the pinball machine. Yeah, the pinball yeah. machines, exactly. I was kind of thinking about it in that sense. And then, yeah, so for the second time I performed it, I wanted it to kind of reflect the experience I was initially thinking, which was more unstable and, yeah, not having those pins kind of securing the table down. Um, and this time it took place at the Crypt Gallery, which is under a church in Euston, a really beautiful church. And yeah, and that was, it, I was kind of afraid that it would come almost too obvious in a sense, because an autumn table in a crypt. But um, I was happy, to t- like, because it's such a unique space and I got this opportunity, I thought, like, you know, you might as well take advantage of it and see how it works. And I think it actually worked all right. Um maybe more theatrical than I'd usually kind of have for a setting but again sort of interesting yeah yeah exactly and it was freezing it was December and I was working with 10 other performance artists and performers and um so they lay one on top of the other um kind of dressed in underclothing and I think it was maybe eight of them were piled on top of each other and then the tabletop kind of slotted on top of them and then would kind of move with their movements and breathing. Oh, so it had to sort of negotiate the, the eight bodies breathing. Yeah, that and the balance of it. So again, quite like haphazard. And then again, I played, uh, or tried to play snooker on that surface. And then the third reiteration of that piece, uh, I was performing by myself and um, I kind of was wearing this protective suit which I many times wear in my performances and um, I just went on the table and I was just trying to kind of like extend my body in different ways and see what would happen to the table and kind of negotiate its balance 
with my own balance and it would occasionally collapse and then I'd have to redo it and it was kind of an ongoing process. So you have your the production of the piece which could be getting the materials, struggling on the tube with all the golf balls <laughs> etc uh, and setting it up and then what are the other sort of layers to the production process like how long how long do you spend um, practicing for some of them like talking to the different performers that are going to be in it um, is that is any of that um, an integral part like do you only want to spend five minutes talking to them and then see what happens <laughs> or do you want to spend five hours talking and um, craft I, don't, what happens? <laughs> I don't really have I mean I have a like a timetable in terms of like I know when something has to be done by usually yeah. <laughs> um, that old red circle on yeah the yeah exactly um but in terms of how much time so there is a, you know a finite amount of time we can spend on kind of negotiating and but really I'm happy to spend as much time as is required um and I actually really enjoyed like during the degree show um I was there every day all day long so just to be there whilst the people were performing. I didn't necessarily have to be there, but like it was really important for me to kind of like, you know, when some dancers were on a break to be with them, to kind of observe it, to kind of, you know, talk to them, get to know who they are. And I think it's really vital because like once you get good relationships with different people, those are people you might work with again. And, you know, obviously it's also essential because someone's doing something for you in a sense, as well as for themselves. Um, and it's important to kind of one of the things I've really enjoyed with in collaboration is you have to be quite attentive both to others but also your own needs but definitely to other people's needs and um, yeah and it's it's quite I, I don't know I don't know if um, I've never thought of myself as maternal in any sense <laughs> but I think in those moments maybe like that kind of comes out and I kind of enjoy you know going and getting food and getting them drinks and making sure they have chocolate because that's what they like and you know whatever <laughs> the, the people need um so yeah so I'm happy to kind of not set a time frame for you know talking and working with people because I think like you never know what's going to come out of it and if you kind of limit the time you spent with someone you know or, or make it very strict in a sense like you might miss these opportunities and for example um the person that ended up doing the sound for the RA piece was a first year who had helped me create one of my other pieces. Mm -hmm. So it was a sort of like, and then when I got that opportunity, I was like, oh, he also does sound and I really like his work. Like, it would be nice to give him an opportunity as well. Um, or people that helped me document one thing would then help me document something else. And there's like an exchange, I feel. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> then you get sort of, yeah much more uh, a much wider base to work with as well yeah which is interesting and I think the other thing that's fun with collaboration is just a social aspect mm. it feels less like work if you're surrounded with people and you're all chatting and you know and you're having a good time and I think that's actually really important for art is to just have a good time while doing it at least sometimes <laughs> yeah especially if it's sort of a performative piece yeah. it's quite interesting to see what the actual mm. emotions that come from doing the piece are yeah um but also in the making process, so like with all the pieces I've made this year, there have been so many people involved in the making, like with the glass piece, like I couldn't assemble like hundreds of, you know, glasses together in two weeks because that's the space we got to making the thing. In. And um, so, yeah, there were like a lot of people helping me. And 
and it makes it fun. It kind of becomes like this collaborative thing. Mm, so yeah. you, do you just sit there in like a supply line? Yeah, literally, and we just That's have like nice. music on and like just like snack and just yeah, just chat. Mm. And I also I think I don't know I don't want to bring like the kind of feminist female artist thing in, but like something at but I I this year I was um, I co co funded founded this feminist art workshop that we were giving for women in um, in these precarious situations and had gone through domestic violence and we were so we were teaching them about you know kind of female empowerment through showing them different female artists throughout history and like so that just got me kind of engaged and kind of learning more about it and like an aspect that was really important for us to bring through in those workshops but also something that I've seen with female artists was that there's a lot of collaboration and there's a lot of thinking like kind of you know um, horizontally kind of about who's around you and um, Mm. I find that to be really important as part of the work or as part of the process as as both yeah as both in a lot of your pieces you have and we talked about it with the darts piece um on valentine's day or around valentine's day this idea of ritual performing Mm. ritual how far have i performed it how far have i lived it and actually in doing your sort of three years of ba and like everything that comes Mm. with it in learning and developing your performative process how far have you found that you're able to like step aside and work out what is performativity in your life and what is not like does doing performance art give you anything additional to sort of notice the real things and notice the things that are slightly more staged in everyday life Mm. because there's like thousands of things every day that are staged in it's hard to notice yeah. it. I think, I think the work orig- like wouldn't exist without there being like a prior kind of observation of that. But I think it has, through doing it, has also increased my ability to kind of... Well, like, I don't know if ability as such, but more like kind of just noticing things. And like, so yeah, so definitely like going through kind of like mon- mundane kind of things, rituals, like recently, the other day, as just public transport and then you know when you kind of walk towards someone and someone's coming towards you and then you both like kind of anxiously move to one side both the to wiggle. the same side you know, <laughs> the wiggle exactly and like so I was kind of thinking about that and different movements we do on public transport and I was kind of thinking it would be maybe interesting in the future to take that and like choreograph that into a sort of or like you know when you're on mm. a tube and people that haven't taken their backpack down and you if two people have a backpack, you kind of like have this kind of backpack <laughs> wiggle. So yeah, they're like, two tortoises that are a bit stuck on their back. Yeah, exactly, thing. exactly. So I was thinking of, yeah, kind of trying to pick up. So I definitely, I think, maybe notice these kind of things more. Mm. So is it the social interactions that you're interested in more? Not only, also our interactions, again, with our, within architecture. But I think like these days, in cities at least, like you're very rarely alone anywhere really. Mm. like maybe within your room but even then like you'll be on your Instagram and you you know you're not really alone so like I think yeah inevitably it's social interaction but also within a certain space and in relation to objects Mm. Mm. because there's always an audience isn't there really yeah there was that um the public transport comment 
reminded me of this piece, and I can't for the life of me remember who it's by. Uh, I will find out. <laughs> um, but it was a performative piece where a woman got onto, she noticed she was doing the same journey every day as you do when yeah. you sort of commute. Um, and she was getting the same bus every day. And she noticed how holy and how um, sort of torn up all the seats were. And so one day she just took a needle and thread and started repairing. And she did it every day and she did it on her way there and she did it on her way back. And sometimes she'd notice that she was on the same bus because she's already repaired it. And sometimes she'd notice she was on a new bus. And it was all this, it was entirely a performative thing. Mm. She wasn't doing it because she wanted to fix the bus. She was sort of doing it to see what the process was. And for that, even though it sounds like I'm saying it and I'm imagining it that she's on her own, but of course there's like this implicit audience of the other mm. people that are like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah, and it makes them notice their journeys mm. and, like, the space that they're also the roots, but also these damaged, you know, vehicles that they're inhabiting and, like, yeah. And the kind space of, and the objects, yeah, yeah, to really notice it. And this care as well. Like, someone cares enough to, I think, you know, try and repair it yeah. or, like, bring their awareness or bring people's awareness to it. And maybe... Maybe it's just entertainment, right? Like, mm. maybe it's just, like, oh, a story that then you can tell, like, oh, there was this, like, nutty woman on the bus, like, kind of, like, <laughs> it. But, like, that's, you know, that's still, there's still value in that, I think, as well. Yeah, and that's sort of the interesting thing about that almost is then how far does the story go? You mm. get the Chinese whispers aspect of it, like, this one woman has done this one thing one morning and then 30 people on the bus saw, told their colleagues who told other people... It's like, how far geographically does that yeah. go? And, and there's a story Why am I telling that. it now? I think yeah. my tutor told it to me at some point. <laughs> I'd um, love to know who it was. I was just going to go back to thinking about terms and like that term, like like a ritual storytelling. I feel like sometimes using them, I feel a bit anachronistic in a sense. I don't have a replacement word for it. I'm sure there is some word that maybe fits it better in contemporary society, but I just have to find what that word is um, and make it sound a bit more contemporary because I don't think these are things that are you know specific to a certain era or time so um, I actually don't know if I mentioned this to you maybe this is going to be a bit of a surprise but at the end of each episode um, I like to try and work out a title with you (laughs) based on what we've talked about and um, yeah, to sort of represent the episode and your practice generally. And because I haven't warned you of this, um, <laughs> you probably have no idea. But we'll it'd be improvise. Nice to throw it. Yeah, we'll improvise. Perfect. Um, one thing that you said earlier, and I have n- no context for this yeah. at all, is what happens when you have both. And I don't know what you said that about, but I, I found it interesting because it was... A lot of the things we were talking about mm. were about sort of like objects, space, people, yeah. adding elements in different mm. um, in different ways and yeah. in different combinations. And that what happens when you have both, I thought was an interesting one. But let's spring out from that because I don't want to name yeah. the episode. Yeah, no, that's interesting also in terms of like kind of outside and inside, right? Of like both the process of making art and also like observing art mm. and also like the materials I use and the spaces we occupy. So yeah, both is interesting. Could also be neither. But yeah. That's true. Yeah. Um or just improvise. <laughs> <laughs> improvise. An improvised podcast maybe. Yeah. <laughs>
That's quite a good one, actually. Yeah, and that kind of reflects, again, on the process of what it is. <laughs> yeah, the sort of conversation structure. Yeah. Oh, you can yeah. represent you and me at the same time, actually. Yeah, exactly. An improvised podcast. Shall yeah. we Shall yeah. we do that? <laughs> Great. Okay. Short and simple. Okay, well, uh, thank you very much for talking us all through um, your pieces, and hopefully we'll see a bit more of them in the future. Thanks, Tiffany. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Oh, and I'll put a link up on my website so that you can see some of the visuals. So that should be on um, slash the art exchange. And I'll share it on the SoundCloud too. So do go and have a look at uh, both the videos and the stills to try and get more of an idea of what Tuli's working with. Okay, thanks. Thank you. <laughs>